This is an audio recording of an award lecture presented at the 2022 Annual Meeting of the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. All right. So uh, let me just say um, uh, that I really appreciate this honor, and uh, I started my career as a biochemist, and you'll see that I've deviated a bit, but my heart is always here uh, with the society. So I thought I'd uh, tell you a little bit about the work that my laboratory has been doing mostly very recently, but it really culminates uh, with regards to my entire career, which now has spanned and passed four decades. So. Um, let me hope that I can go to the next slide, which it does not appear that I can. So, um, yes, all right, so I will start <laughs> with, um, with a recent uh, vacation. Um, and uh, I always like to use for my audience uh, uh, the recognition that nature has been so amazing with regards to the diversity that exists on our body surfaces, and we, really don't have this kind of diversity in any other tissue of our body, and that's because the skin uh, body surface is basically subjected to all sorts of different traumas, and we have to adjust to that. So let's, in fact, consider a world where our climate is changing, where plants are altering the pollens and allergens that they generate, where air pollutants are becoming more complex and numerous, the ozone layer is thinning, Existing pathogens and microbes are shifting their territories as new pathogens and microbes emerge. Inflammatory disorders and epithelial cancers, not surprisingly, are on the rise, and that's because bearing the brunt of these environmental changes is the epithelium, our body's barrier to the outside world. What we've learned over the years is that if epithelial stem cells malfunction, either in making a proper skin barrier or in communicating with the immune system upon a barrier breach, then chronic inflammation arises. So way back when I started my career and we worked on these keratins, uh, we cloned them, we characterized them, we worked out the genetic basis for their underlying disorders. And in that study, we learned that uh, mutations in keratin-5 would and 14, which are the stem cell uh, keratins, uh, cause one particular disorder, whereas mutations in the keratins 1 and 10, which are uh, terminally differentiating uh, cells that produce them, uh, create another one. And in studying specifically the one that alters the skin barrier, we learned that those patients also show an increased susceptibility to inflammation and to skin cancer, specifically squamous cell carcinoma. And what we've learned about skin barrier mutations is that there are two complicating factors. First, if the defective barrier is prone to pathogen infection, uh, that in turn then leads to hyperproliferation and inflammation. But in addition, the stem cells try to rescue that barrier defect by making more skin layers, and that in turn leads to hyperproliferation and skin cancer susceptibility. So let's go to another disorder of structural proteins of the skin epithelium, atopic dermatitis. This affects one to 3% of the world population. Environmental contributors 
cold and dry environments, the treatments are typically immunosuppressive drugs. Genetic determinants or polymorphisms are in interleukin 18 and interleukin 13, which of course then are involved in inflammatory responses. But on the flip side of that are a vast number of mutations in the protein filaggrin, which is an outer, a large protein uh, of unknown function found in these green granules of the outer skin layers. And filaggrin, as we learned just a couple of years ago, uh, assembles into fluid oil-like granules which become viscous and mechanically distort the nuclei or organelles uh, as they reach the outer layers of the skin. The granules then suddenly disassemble as the cells lose their nuclei and organelles and become barrier cells. And so what happens is that the mutations in these families end up associating all along, distributed all along this protein, and the protein is made up of repeats of unstructured uh, domains, and that leads to an inability in these mutants to be able to undergo these conformational changes that are temperature and pH sensitive, and those are the kinds of temperature and pH fluxes that our body uh, experiences in our skin on a day-to-day -day basis. Without filaggrin, it, then these granules end up never forming, and they end up accumulate, the nuclei and organelles accumulate, cells never flatten out, and there's a skin barrier defect, and that leads to the hyperinflammatory response that then gets addressed uh, by um, immunosuppressive drugs, which may not, in the end, be very effective, certainly on the long term. So let's consider these chronic inflammatory disorders they're common in our populations, psoriasis and atopic dermatitis in the skin, but also chronic wound healing, asthma, inflammatory bowel disease. Most of these disorders are of unknown etiology and they're also complex etiology involving on the one hand mutations in the immune system and on the other uh, various different mutations that could affect barrier function. Epithelial hyperproliferation comes and goes and upon each assault, it often occurs in the same spots with increasing severity. And interestingly, the secondary trigger need not necessarily be the same as the first one. So poison ivy could cause a, 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 an irritant response and then it disappears and then the next time it's not poison ivy but it causes often uh, an irritant response in the same place. So we got interested in this about five years ago to try to dig deeper into the molecular mechanisms. And Shruti uh, Nayak and Samantha Larson, who were then in my laboratory, used wounding as a secondary stimulus. They first just created a wound in a normal uh, mouse, <clears throat> but then they also exposed the mouse first to skin inflammation, specifically TH17 type inflammation, let the inflammation resolve, and then wound again. And in every time, the wound was always more rapid than uh, healing, was more rapid than in uh, if the skin had not experienced inflammation. So we first thought about immune cells, in fact, because they've long been known to have memory. B and T cells certainly can rearrange their receptors in order to be able to recognize and target that next pathogen, but it's the same pathogen. And so we suspected, and that turned out to be the case, that in fact the adaptive immune cells, B and T cells, 
are not necessary for this type of, of memory of infection that I'm describing here. So we still saw increased wounding if we stimulated the skin, even on a RAG2 null mouse. We also looked at the Th17 response immune cells as well, the RORC positive uh, T cells and innate lymphocytes. They did not be, they were not involved in the memory. Also macrophages were not involved in the memory. And it was about at that time that we started to realize that perhaps the epidermal stem cells themselves might be the ones that are carrying this memory of an inflammatory experience, and that turned out to be the case. Interestingly, with few exceptions, epidermal stem cell gene transcription returns to normal after the inflammation resolves, so you get many, tens, 10,000 chromatin changes that happen. Most of those resolve at the end of inflammation when the pathology returns back to normal. But about 10% of, of the chromatin changes and that's about 2,000 chromatin changes, turned out not to resolve. They lingered, and after 30 days, uh, we still saw evidence at the chromatin level that these peaks were retained. And even after six months after the first inflammatory stimulus, we still saw that these chromatin openings were still present. And so we first wanted to check, are they actually important? Maybe they're just random peaks. So we cut them out and we used them as enhancers to drive EGFP in mice. And in three different examples of mice that I'm showing you here, the mouse, uh, uh, when it's not exposed to any kind of inflammatory stimulus, doesn't do anything with regards to this gene. But if we add the stimulus, then the gene turns on. And so these are inflammation sensors that are sitting in the chromatin, in this case the mouse's chromatin, but presumably also human chromatin, six months later, which is five to six human years later uh, after that initial inflammatory experience. The genes that are associated with these inflammation sensors are rapidly activated upon a secondary assault. So the secondary assault is always worse than the first assault with regards to the response. In the case of wound healing, that's a good one. In the case of chronic inflammation, that's not such a good one. So we wanted to know how is the memory established, how is the memory retained, and how is the memory recalled. And this was the work of three graduate students, Chris Cowley and Raj Sajath, joined Samantha Larson in this endeavor. So how is the memory established? In this case, a Th17 response classically induces phosphostat-3. And what was interesting here is that when we scanned the motifs, the transcription factor motifs that were present in these inflammation sensing peaks that weren't closing, what we found is that <clears throat> the motifs, stat-3 and phosphogen, were much more highly represented in those peaks than in any of the peaks that closed or any of the housekeeping gene peaks that were constitutively open. And when we also then looked at the induction of FOS, we found that FOS2 is induced rapidly after a Th17 stimulus. And with regards to Jun, Jun is present in the stem cells, but in fact it is heightened uh, after this inflammatory stimulus. So these transcription factors are there induced by the inflammation stimulus, uh, do they bind to the chromatin? And here you can see on the left that the ATAC peak with the chromatin 
uh, opened. Uh, also, FOSS binds, JUN binds, and STAT3 binds. And so, all of these transcription factors are coming in and binding to the chromatin. Are they important? So here we knocked out STAT3 conditionally, and if we knock out STAT3, we see that the memory peaks now uh, are no longer established. So STAT3 is important in establishing the memory domains. FOSS and JUN are also important, and if we create a dominant negative FOSS and JUN and express that in the mouse, we find that again, these memory peaks do not uh, are not uh, established in the absence of these two factors. Is there a hierarchy? And it turns out that there is. If we conditionally knock out uh, STAT3, we find that FOSS is affected, FOSS and JUN are affected. And so what we're learning from these studies, and I'll uh, explain more in a bit, that uh, we need this STAT3 to be able to open up the chromatin. Once STAT3 opens the chromatin, FOSS and JUN then gain access and bind. So how is the memory retained? After inflammation, STAT3 goes away, phosphostat 3 goes away, FOSS goes away. So doesn't the chromatin close up? And it turns out that it doesn't. And the reason why it doesn't is that when we analyze those motifs for additional binding sites that are much more highly found in those peaks than others, we found that ATF3 and P63, two more homeostatic stem cell transcription factors along with JUN are all present, uh, or the motifs are present. And indeed, the transcription factors also are present. So just like JUN, which remains on the chromatin after the inflammation has subsided, so too do ATF3 and P63. They don't have access to the chromatin before inflammation, but once STAT3 and FOSS open up the chromatin, they bind, and now they're still there long after the inflammation has subsided. So how does the recall work then? In this case, we used wound as a secondary recall because that establishes or induces an inflammatory response. And here what we found is that within hours, four hours after wounding FOSS, comes in, binds to the chromatin, and not only that, but it remodels the chromatin and activates transcription. So remember, in the absence of STAT3 and FOSS, transcription is not active. You need FOSS and JUN to be able to remodel chromatin and activate transcription. We also did the same for looking at histone modification peaks, and I don't have time to discuss that. So is STAT3 necessary. It turns out that STAT3 is not necessary for memory recall. And the reason for that is, is that STAT3 is necessary to open the chromatin, but in fact the chromatin remains open after inflammation, and so all you need at that point for FOSS to gain access is the inflammation or the, uh, the, the stimulus. And now we're dealing with a general stimulus. FOSS is activated in all sorts of different stress conditions. And transcription then also occurs and does not need STAT3. So if we go on and say, well, how general is this phenomenon? It turns out that there is memory in a variety of different uh, innate immune cells, uh, natural killer cells, T lymphocytes stimulated with various different viruses, 
um, and dendritic cells from human systemic sclerosis, taking non-lesional skin as sort of a memory-like state. And when we analyze the data in the way that I've just described to you, it turns out that in fact, FOSS and Jun are at the top of the list with regards to transcription factors that, uh, that are associated with these motifs of memory and, um, and transcription factors that are associated with recall of memory. And so this appears to be a general phenomenon and it has major implications. Let me first uh, summarize the, uh, the information that I've told you thus far. We have a situation where the chromatin is closed. There's now inflammation. Uh, STAT3 is induced, FOSS is induced, heterodimerizes with JUN. STAT3 is necessary for chromatin opening. Once the chromatin is open, FOSS and JUN gain access. They bind as well as stem cell factors binding, and now as well as chromatin remodelers and histone modifiers, and transcription goes on. In the absence of inflammation, transcription turns off. Memory is retained by the stem cell factors that keep the chromatin open along with H3K4 monomethylation, which I don't have time to talk about. And so <clears throat> recalling the memory, now you have this situation and all you need at this point is a nonspecific stress which induces FOSS that triggers the opening remodeling of the remodeling of the open chromatin and transcription. And so by using a stimulus-specific transcription factor to open chromatin, target specificity is achieved. What genes are you going to turn on in response to an inflammatory stimulus that you want to leave on and have activated later on down the road? By involving a broad stress-induced transcription factor in the process, memory recall can occur with now diverse secondary stimuli. So what we've known about all of these types of, uh, of memories, epigenetic memories, is that the second time around, the response is always much quicker and much faster. And now we're beginning to understand why the chromatin is already poised to be activated and can therefore be activated much faster. We're also understanding why the secondary stimulus need not necessarily be the same as the first. We've seen these kinds of effects not only in the skin, but since our initial publication, there's now been publications on airway epithelia also holding epigenetic memory, and now in the last year, last six months, on intestinal epithelial cells holding memory. It looks like this could be a broad effect by which our tissues are sitting there with epigenetic marks of our inflammatory experiences. In fact, in regards to it's not just us, uh, in the study that was done on intestinal epithelia, it turned out that a pregnant mom exposed to a pathogen ends up delivering a immune response that has a systemic effect or a systemic component that affects the fetus that's never been exposed to that pathogen and the fetus now when it is born and becomes adult harbors this kind of memory, epigenetic memory that I've just described. So this is really food for thought. So since the 1930s, 
it was known that infants vaccinated against one bacterium develop protection against another with regards to human tuberculosis and why uh, children were vaccinated with <coughs> BCG uh, in order to give them added protection. Never understood, but the phenomenon was very clear. Plants that survive one pathogen are often resistant to other, often unrelated pathogens. What epigenetic memory does is it affords a means to apply the lessons learned in becoming sensitized by one stimulus towards encounters with a new stimulus. But it can have not only beneficial effects as in the case of wound repair, and it's probably that what, for which we have evolutionarily conserved this type of me mechanism, but it can also have deleterious chronic inflammation consequences in all of these various different chronic inflammatory disorders. So I'll just <clears throat> finish then by dealing with a few more quick questions. Do stem cells harbor memories of different kinds of experiences? There's lots of those experiences out there in the world. Is memory, uh, do we have different kinds of memory in our chromatin from those experiences? And is epigenetic memory cumulative? If that's the case, and we happen to get older, consider the consequences. So in order to address that question, Kevin Gonzalez, a postdoctoral fellow <clears throat> in my laboratory, used a type of wounding where over the years we've worked out what, <clears throat> where the stem cell compartments are in the skin, uh, showing that there are hair follicle stem cell compartments and epidermal stem cell compartments. And we created a wound that mobilized, that got rid of the epidermis, but mobilized the hair follicle stem cells to repair the damaged epidermis. And stem cells have this plasticity able to respond to wounds. And so what we did is treat a wound in that way and stimulated the hair follicle stem cells and watched those stem cells or monitored those stem cells as, they're, as they exit the niche, they're mobilized, they migrate upward, they confront inflammation, they change their fate. They used to be a hair follicle stem cell making hair and now they're acting like an epidermal stem cell making epidermis. And we looked at how they adapt to that new task in a new, in a new environment. And what we learned is that at each step along the way, the stem cells bear memories of each of those experiences. They bear memories of their wounds, repairing their wounds, migrating. They repair memories of, they, they contain memories of who they used to be, and they adapt not so happily to who they have to be now repairing a new task or, or doing a new task for thereafter more. So what are the consequences of these memories? Enhanced plasticity is one of them. We looked at these epidermal stem cells that used to be hair follicle stem cells, and for all practical purposes, at the transcriptional level, at the cell proliferation level, at their ability to make the skin barrier, at all of those states, those memory, the, 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 the cells can do it, and they do it, and without our ability to distinguish until we look at the chromatin. And then we find that in fact those chromatin, the chromatin has all these memories. And so we decided, well, what happens if we challenge 
a stem cell that is now basically being a happy epidermal stem cell if we challenge it to be able to now make hair. And so we did that, and it turns out that now those stem cells, even though they're behaving like epidermal stem cells long after uh, the, um, the wound, essentially are now much more quick and able to make hair follicles than, um, and hair than, uh, than their naive counterparts. And it's not uh, attributed to wounds. We can wound an epidermal, uh, an epidermis, we can wound the skin in a way that prompts or mobilizes the epidermal stem cells, and they don't have that kind of memory. But what both of those types of stem cells do have with regards to memory is the ability to migrate whether it's a hair follicle stem cell repairing the epidermis or an epidermal stem cell repairing the epidermis, both of those stem cells retain a memory of their ability to migrate, and they migrate much faster extrinsically or intrinsically, both in the, um, sorry, in the context of the tissue and in the context of a Petri dish. And so what we're dealing with is basically a whole host of different memories. With the ability to heal wounds faster, we have to raise the question of do these memories contribute to cancer? Patients with psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, they have an increased risk of cancer. Mice that heal their wounds faster, as we've described many years ago, are more susceptible to cancer, particularly at natural sites of inflammation. We showed a number of years ago that where simple epithelia collide with stratified epithelia, for instance, in the esophagus or in the, at the other end of the scale, basically uh, are natural zones of inflammatory reaction, and those sites are sites of enhanced tumor susceptibility. So another aspect is, is that just recently, pancreatic epithelial cells have been shown to have memory of inflammation. That leads to acinoreductal metaplasia and increases the susceptibility to pancreatic cancer. So the skin of our body is subjected to all sorts of different stresses. I've listed them here. Its stem cells have to be poised to sense these changes and rapidly adjust. There's a plethora of resident immune cells and other niche cells that are helping them along the way. And it's for that reason that I've continued throughout my career to work on skin because it's an accessible one and it has this amazing power to uh, resist aspects of, uh, of metastasis, to withstand extremes of temperature. And I think by understanding the mechanisms underlying these processes, as we're learning, what we find is applicable to a whole variety of different uh, not only tissues, but also uh, disease conditions. So um, how long do memories of struggle and stress last, and how does this affect aging? Could inflammatory memory explain why COVID-19 creates a more robust cytokine storm in aging individuals, adding fuel to that fire? We don't know the answers to that, but if we go back to Ronald Coleman, Coleman I don't think you're going to get this movie, but basically he says that effectively the reason why they live for 100 years 
I'll leave that one out. Um, but essentially, they live for 100 years because of the absence of stress. So I'll leave you with that and uh, just thank my laboratory for all of the wonderful work that they do. And I hope uh, next time to have an opportunity to tell you more uh, about the science. Thank you so much, and thank you for this award. We hope you have enjoyed this lecture. It was recorded in April 2022 in Philadelphia at the ASBMB annual meeting, held in conjunction for the final time with the Experimental Biology Conference. In 2023, the ASBMB annual meeting will be held in Seattle. Learn more at discoverbnb.asbmb.org.